Well, good evening. It is a joy to be with you. I get to do my favorite thing, theology, with members of the family of God. And uh, I'll take Sunday night theology over Monday night football any week. <laughs> my project is also more ambitious. <laughs> I'm not trying to win a game, I'm not even trying to head to the Super Bowl. As a theologian, I'm trying to make disciples, competent citizens of the gospel, people who know how to represent their kingdom, the kingdom of God well, and their church. People know how to represent the values and the beliefs of the holy nation to which they belong. I believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. For many 21st century Christians, of all the lines in the Apostles' Creed, this one may be the hardest to confess with heartfelt conviction. We believe the Father raised Jesus from the dead. We believe the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, insofar as we can understand that mystery. But to say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that's hard, precisely because it's the only article of the creed that asks us to believe in something that we have direct experience of. It's the only statement of something that we can see, that we can hear, that we experience for ourselves. And that's the rub, you see. When many people look at the church, what they see are divisions. They hear about the sexual abuse scandals. They feel the pain of needs not met, and too often we witness the spectacle of Christians whose life simply mirrors the same disappointing trends we see in broader society, brokenness, trauma, feuds, and factions. I believe in the church, help thou mine unbelief. Well, four years ago to the day, we marked the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. How should we think about it 500 years after? Making disciples of all nations is consistent with Jesus' great commission, but what about the Reformation's giving birth to multiple, often competing denominations? Is that what Jesus meant when He said, go and make disciples? Is that the fruit that was supposed to be there after this recovery of biblical Christianity? You see, the critics of the Reformation, their name is Legion, they say the Reformation broke the church, split it again and again and again. And so 500 years after the event, the question still forces itself upon us. Was the net effect of the Reformation the edification of the church, or was it the drawing and quartering of the body of Christ? Some people are asking, or in claiming that the Reformation was a mistake. So there are some historical questions to look at, but the normative question that I want us to consider is this. Should the church continue this trajectory of Reformation? I believe in the church. A lot of people can say that. Protestants and Roman Catholics affirm this oldest line of the oldest creed. But if we inquire further into the church's nature, location, and purpose, 
uh, we expose the fault lines that divide various churches. And so it gives rise to the question, where is the true church? What does it look like? I like to ask the question, why is there church rather than nothing? What is the church for? And who has the right to answer these questions? And how do they do that? On what basis? When we ask these kinds of questions, we're raising a contentious issue, the nature and locus of authority in the church. Whose say-so counts and why? Well, the church is a singular institution. It's not like the other institutions on earth. The church is holy. It's set aside for a divine purpose. You see, there are some things that only a church can do. Other institutions can feed the poor, and that's important. Other churches can, other institutions entertain us, and that can be important. Other institutions work for justice, that's good. But only the church is mandated to minister the Word of God. Only the church is mandated to make disciples. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, then all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, he says, are simply a waste of time. I believe in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died for the church in his witness, says the church is God's new purpose for humanity. And it's good news. It's part of the gospel. There's something new in the church to be had, the forgiveness of sins, the communion of saints. So this question, was the Reformation a mistake, is linked to another question. Should the church be biblical? And what does that mean? What does it mean for a church to be biblical? I think the questions are related because the Reformers claimed to be biblical and to reform the church because they wanted to be biblical. And they were doing this for the sake of Christ's commission to the church to become a holy nation, make disciples of all nations. This is the Great Commission, teaching them to observe what Jesus has commanded. Martin Luther saw the Bible as the manger in which we find the baby Jesus and the living adult Christ. But the question is, is the church living by every word that comes from the mouth of God, or is it drawn to the voice and the words of strangers? Whose words are we following? There's so many words out there giving us advice about how to live, how to invest, where wisdom is. Whose words are we following? This is another way of asking, whose disciples are we? Which story, which script are we living out as individuals and as a community? The Reformers, you see, felt we, had to be, we should be following the Holy Script, Holy Scripture, because they believed, as I said, that's where we find Christ, in the manger of the Scriptures. At the heart of the Scriptures is the story of Jesus, which begins way back in the Old Testament. I'm mentioning all this because some people contrast following the Bible and following Jesus. I've had conversations with people when they know I affirm biblical authority. They say, well, I follow Jesus, not a book. But the problem is the book is all about Jesus, 
and Jesus taught about the book. He considered it the Word of God. If you follow Jesus, you have to follow the Scriptures. So being biblical isn't an alternative to following Jesus. It's one of the ways we follow Jesus. And following is the operative term. You just can't have a high view of Scripture if you don't know what it says. And even knowing what it says isn't that great if you don't respond to it the way you should. We have to follow these words. People who have a high view of Scripture but fail to live by its light are like people who respect doctors but never do what they say. Why do we need doctors if we're not going to follow their advice? So when the Reformers say sola scriptura, it's not just about a doctrine of Scripture. They're saying we're going to live this way. We've decided that being biblical is more important than anything else. A harsh critic might agree, yes, the Protestants tried to follow the Scriptures. The Protestants are a creature of the Word, but what a creature. Some would say sola scriptura has begat a many-headed hydra, a frankenchurch. Uh, one theologian calls sola scriptura the sin of the Reformation, a poisonous toxin in the body of Christ, a crime against the unity and Catholicity of the church that leads people to be dividers, not uniters. The Protestant Revolution, you see, was a revolution in how to read the Bible. Instead of simply deferring to the authority of the institutional church based in Rome, individuals were encouraged to read the Bible in their own language for themselves. This is behind uh, what's behind Martin Luther's famous claim, here I stand with the Scriptures. I can do no other. And yet, the apparent inability of Protestants to come to a common mind about what Scripture means is what has led many to blame sola scriptura for all the church divisions since the Reformation. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard bewails the many ways Protestants read the Bible. He says, and then the interpretations, 30,000 different interpretations. But I wonder if Kierkegaard would be surprised to learn that today, there is, it's not just that we have 30,000 interpretations, we have 30,000 denominations and counting. There's a chart that shows some of the branching off. So what's at stake as we celebrate this 504th anniversary of the Reformation really concerns the kind of disciples Protestants are making in local churches. I believe that a disciple, like the church itself, is a creature of the Word of God. I believe that sola scriptura, Scripture alone, rightly understood, has a positive and vital role to play in making disciples and in helping them grow. But if we're going to understand and assess the Reformation rightly, we have to return to the scene of the crime, at least what many consider the crime this violent Reformation amputation of a Protestant limb from the Roman Catholic body of Christ. Trial is an appropriate image, not least because the Reformation began with a real trial. Luther's trial 
before Cardinal Cajetan in 1518, and he was subsequently excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church in 1521. But though Luther was literally on trial, the way he saw it, what was on trial was the Word of God and its authority. Today, what's on trial, I think, in the court of public opinion is the legacy of the Reformation. And what led me to that book that a couple of you now have was hearing people say things like, I'm not going to celebrate the Reformation, I'm going to lament it because of all these divisions. And that prompted me about six years ago now to, to get going and thinking about this. How do we respond to that charge? How will we judge the Reformation? So we're going to conduct a trial. I've now constituted you as the jury, and I'm going to make a case for and against Sola Scriptura, and I'll ask you to render a verdict. We begin with the case for the prosecution. I have several charges as a prosecutor of Sola Scriptura. So here are the primary charges. Probably the most popular accusation one hears is that the Reformation was an unnecessary event with unintended but tragic consequences, what we've already described, the dismemberment of the body of Christ. And because the consequence was unintended, we can't really speak of murder or even manslaughter, but we could speak of gross ecclesial negligence. That's the first charge. The second charge is that some theologians feel that Sola Scriptura turns the Bible into a mere criterion for knowledge, a kind of canonical slide rule for distinguishing true from false beliefs, instead of a book of piety that makes us wise unto salvation and cultivates godliness. On this view, Sola Scriptura is seen as a kind of uh, epistemological principle, as something that is, again, used in philosophical debates, and some worry that this makes the Bible very modern. It's as though we have to appeal to the Bible for certainty, and this is what moderns want. They want to have certainty. So there are some that say the Reformation has made Sola Scriptura uh, modern. But the biggest critical blast, and my third count, is uh, an argument that comes from a historian called Brad Gregory, and he's a book, author of this book, The Unintended Reformation, and he complains that Luther, by rejecting the authority of church tradition, accidentally opened a Pandora's box. Here I stand is the way Gregory hears Luther's words. And the problem, as Gregory points out, is that from 1520 onwards, those who rejected Rome disagreed about what the Bible said. So the result of the loss of this one authoritative tradition from Rome, the result was interpretive anarchy. Every individual now claimed the right to read the Bible for himself or herself. And this is the recipe for turning biblical authority into a babble of competing interpretations. Once you locate the authority to interpret Scripture in individuals rather than in the church, so the argument goes, 
it becomes impossible to halt this proliferation of interpretations. The first time I came across that argument, uh, I was doing evangelism in France. I was at a table with literature, Gospels of John, and a man walked by, saw what the table was all about, and said to me, so, you're an anarchist. And I thought, wow, that's cool. (laughs) But I didn't understand what he was saying. It was a Roman Catholic layman. And he said, you're an anarchist because we in the Roman Catholic Church, we have a head who tells us how to interpret the Bible. The etymology of anarchy means literally something without a head. Without the arche, without the head, you've got anarchy. And that was his, that was his dismissal of my book table. The fourth charge... Uh, comes from an evangelical church historian, actually, Alistair McGrath. Uh, He's a historical theologian and a molecular biologist, and maybe that explains what he says about Sola Scriptura. But uh, he, he riffs his own book title off Daniel Dennett's book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, because Alistair McGrath, in worrying that... Uh, the Sola Scriptura has made the church divisive, talks about Christianity's dangerous idea, not Darwin's dangerous idea. And in this book, he compares the Reformation and this Protestant principle to a microorganism, a virus capable of rapid mutation, proficient at adapting, and surviving under different conditions. The essence of Protestantism, this dangerous idea, is this desire to be biblical without giving any authoritative meaning to what it means to be biblical. And so this church historian says this is what makes Protestantism dangerous because what do you call uh, an uncontrolled division of cells, all claiming to be biblical, of course, cells that mutate throughout the body of Christ. What do you call that? Molecular biologist calls that cancer. So here's the claim, the charge. Sola Scriptura is a cancer in the body of Christ. A fifth charge. In in protesting the authority of Rome and relocating authority in Scripture itself, the Reformers left themselves without a referee. We've been saying that without a referee that could settle interpretive disputes about what the Bible actually means. So there's another book called The Bible Made Impossible, and that author says that Protestant biblicism always leads to what he calls pervasive interpretive pluralism. Pervasive everywhere, interpretive pluralism. In other words, if you bring Protestants into a place, you're going to multiply biblical interpretations world without end. So, that's the fifth count. And then the sixth count, troubling, several critics suggest that sola scriptura functions in abstraction from, or maybe even as a rival to another sola, solus Christus, Christ alone. Apparently, so this accusation goes, no man can serve two solas. But as I hope we'll see, Scripture alone 
does not mean that the Bible functions independently of Christ. On the contrary. So that's one thing I hope you do learn. Don't let people tell you that you have to choose one sola over another. And I guess to sum up the case, um, we can say that sola scriptura creates this Achilles heel in Protestantism. It's our weak spot, so the argument goes. Because, just to repeat, Protestants lack the ability to say whose interpretation we should follow, and that's what leads to all these divisions. Now, I don't think there's a necessary correlation between having a high view of Scripture and being able to read it correctly. When all the exegetical work is done, how do we resolve our disagreements? Uh, Sometimes it seems like being a Protestant is like living in the period of the judges when everyone did or read what was right in his own eyes. Wittenberg, we have a problem. So I concede the point that Protestants, unlike Roman Catholics, don't have an easy institutional solution for arbitrating these interpretive disputes. But I believe the way forward from what some think are the ruins of present-day Protestantism towards a future more united Protestantism, I believe the way forward lies in retrieving historical Protestantism, not a caricature, but the real thing. And even if it's counterintuitive, sola scriptura. I believe that's the way forward. It's the way out of interpretive anarchy, not a fall into it. To be precise, the way out of interpretive anarchy isn't to abandon sola scriptura, it's to recover what the reformers really meant by it and how they practiced it. And I'll just anticipate, or I'll give you my thesis in advance, but we're going to be unpacking this. My claim will be, Scripture alone authorizes, but the Scripture that authorizes is not alone. All right? That's going to be the claim. Maybe it sounds counterintuitive, but I hope that by the end you'll see that it actually makes sense. So that's the case for the prosecution, and I, I hope you agree there's some powerful arguments that need to be countered. A number of these arguments are still very popular in the wider uh, public realm. So, as I now turn to make the case for the defense, I want to convince you, the jury, that sola scriptura is, in fact, not dangerous, but advantageous for the health of the church. My first exhibit is the first of the ten theses of Byrne that I read this morning uh, in the sermon. Let's revisit them. Thesis one, the holy Christian church whose head is Christ is born of the Word of God, abides in the same, and does not listen to the voice of a stranger. You see, the continuing challenge for the church, and the reason the Reformation is not over, is that we have always and everywhere to make sure that the church is hearkening first and foremost to the Word of God and not the voice of a stranger, particularly the familiar strangers, the prophets of political correctness, 
that populate popular culture. So the strategy for the defense will be to clear Sola Scriptura of the aforementioned charges. And everything depends on the definition. Sola Scriptura is shorthand for a principle of biblical authority. That's true. But this principle is not alone. Sola Scriptura is a principle, yes, but it's accompanied by a practice and it par is part of a broader pattern. So it is a principle, but it's also a practice, and it's most importantly part of a pattern. That's why it's not alone. So I need to uh, unpack this pattern. The first thing I want to say is we need to define Sola Scriptura, and that means we need to say more carefully what the Bible is. The authority of the Bible, you see, follows from what it is, its nature. So I want to quickly set out what the Reformers and their heirs assume about the Bible. The first point is that God is its author. God commissioned just these human words to be the means by which He communicates with His people, gives us guidance. In authoring the Bible, then, God authorizes what it says. This is the special office of Scripture. It is the designated authoritative agent, the embassy, as it were, that conveys God's Word to us. God is the ultimate author. Uh, I think Paul says this as much in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, we thank God constantly for this that when you received the Word of God, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. So it all starts there with what the Bible is. We can go a bit further. God authored it, but we can also say that the Bible is God's discourse. It's not just information. It's a means of God communicating to us, of God relating to us personally. I define discourse, as you can see there, as something God says about something to someone in some way for some purpose. It's a means for God to relate to us as persons. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the Bible doesn't just communicate information, though it does that. But it does many other things as well. It tells the truth. It gives us promises. It gives us commands. It comforts us. It reveals the end of history. It tells stories. All of these things the Bible does, it's God's doing. Now, in Luther's late medieval context, the solas were meant to exclude something. And sola scriptura is meant to exclude the equal authority of church traditions. It's meant to exclude the claim of the Church of Rome that Rome has the authority to decide the rightness of biblical interpretations. It is exclusionary to that extent. But I wonder to what extent criticisms of sola scriptura today are in part protests against the very idea of authority. I think too often a picture of authority holds us captive, 
a picture of authority as an oppressive power that impinges upon our freedoms. That's not how God's authority works. God's Word doesn't oppress us. It rather releases us. It delivers us from ignorance, from captivity to false stories, and so on. It reorients believing readers to who they truly are in Christ. It promotes wisdom and righteousness and justice. These are not things to worry about. God's authority, then, is not oppressive. It's liberating. God's Word, then, authorizes us to live with others before God in ways that are good for us. And I think if we could understand that authority, God's authority, is good for us, that might change some of the discussion. Another picture, though, of an individual interpreting the Bible for himself without consulting any other authority holds a number of critics of Sola Scriptura captive to. That is, alongside Sola Scriptura is this idea that it sanctions the authority of individual readers. And you may be thinking, doesn't it? Doesn't it do precisely that, Scripture alone, so the individual is alone? Well, uh, if the literal meaning is a function of what authors mean to say by a phrase, then to interpret sola scriptura as meaning Scripture is the only authority an individual consult, that's not what the Reformers meant. That's not the literal meaning of sola scriptura. You're actually taking it out of its original context, not making it a caricature. So, please hear me on this. The Reformers, by sola scriptura, never intended that phrase to mean we can't consult any other sources. That was never part of it. If there is an exclusionary dimension, it only pertains to what is supreme authority. That is to say, sola scriptura is to say, Scripture alone has supreme authority. There can only be one supreme. Yet to say that Scripture alone is the supreme authority does leave the door ajar for the possibility that there may be secondary authorities that could be relevant and play a part. As to what authority is, let's define it. Rightful say-so, the power to commend belief and command obedience over a particular domain. It's not a bad thing. But the question does arise, who has the right of say-so over a particular domain? Uh, To go back to Alistair McGrath, he's a microbiologist. I'm going to give him say-so over the domain of microbiology. That's that's where uh, he's an expert. But the Word of God, Scripture, this is the Word of the Creator. Author actually means creator. So, God is the creator of what domain? Well, He's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. So, God's Word, He has rightful say-so over all domains, especially the domain of human being, because we are His creatures. He has say-so over us because His say-so, let there be, brought us into existence. 
So God has say-so, and he expresses his say-so verbally because without saying so, there's no meaningful context. There's nothing that holds people accountable or gives us direction unless there's content to authority. If you just tell someone, do, (laughs) that doesn't help them know what they are to do, right? You have to give some people content. So, God does that. He knows our operating instructions because He is the one who created us. And the instructions He gives us are instructions for us to prosper and to to be wise. Uh, The wise person lives along the grain of God's created reality. And who knows God's created order better than the Creator Himself? All this to say is that God's Word, laying down the law, It's authoritative, but it's not oppressive. It's for our good if we would only heed it. So, Protestants confess that God expresses His authority verbally with words, these words we have in Scripture. The Old and New Testament are, you might say, God's last will and testament, His first and His last will. And sola scriptura means that Scripture alone, because it is this set-apart discourse of God, is the only wholly reliable, sufficient, and final authority for Christian faith, life, and thought, including the imagination, by the way. I think Scripture alone should rule in our Christian imaginations. And this is what Luther says, Scripture alone rules, and then we just have to specify the domains over which it rules. So, I'm suggesting that we understand sola scriptura not simply as an exclusionary word, though it does exclude other supreme authorities, but I'm suggesting we understand it as an exclamatory word, Scripture first, Scripture above all earthly powers. Scripture above all earthly authorities. That's an exclamatory word. We're amazed that we have this kind of word. Luther's appeal to sola scriptura does occur, however, in the context of arbitrating this conflict of interpretations. By whose judgment is the question settled if the statements of the fathers are in conflict with one another? Scripture ought to deliver this judgment, he says. So, sola scriptura for Luther means that if the topic is God or the gospel, the final word has to be Scriptures. Scripture is the rule, the canon, which means ruler, the measuring stick that measures up, that tells us what measures up to reality. Scripture tells us who Jesus is, and helps us decide what things measure up to Christ and what things fall short. In other words, Scripture does help us to distinguish truth from falsehood, reliable words from unreliable words, sound from unsound doctrine. So, we've got this authoritative book with many kinds of discourse addressing many areas of human life as well as the plan of salvation. But the different forms of biblical discourse, they really ultimately serve the same end, 
and that is to make us wise unto salvation by communicating Christ. I like the way J.I. Packer puts it. He says, the Bible is God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. This is what I mean when I say Scripture is God's appointed means for making disciples. You make a disciple when you preach the God, the God the Son, Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. And this is the purpose of biblical authority, by the way. It's not so that one Protestant group can lord it over the others. The purpose of Sola Scriptura is that we have a book that's been set apart for the purpose of making disciples for the purpose of forming the mind of Christ in those who call themselves Christians. Now, one of the concerns, another concern about Sola Scriptura is that it encourages interpretive pride, giving to every individual the idea that I am the chief priest of biblical meaning. That's the worry about Sola Scriptura, but I actually see Sola Scriptura working differently. I see it as a standing challenge to interpretive pride and prideful certainty. Because what Sola Scriptura means is, Scripture alone is authoritative, not my interpretation of it. Wow, that cuts me down to size. Now, Scripture shows us the way of Jesus, and it affords us opportunity to discuss with others what discipleship means for today. And as I say, that's the goal of the ministry of the Word, to form a people of the book, a faithful interpretive community. But again, are we on our own in doing this? Well, I think, as I say, Sola Scriptura needs to be put in what I call the pattern of Protestant authority or the Protestant pattern of authority. I don't know if this surprises you or not, I'm saying Scripture is the supreme authority, but I'm saying that for Protestants, it's not the solitary authority. Scripture alone authorizes, but the Scripture that authorizes is not alone. That's not some Zen paradox. <laughs> I'm not clapping with one hand, at least I don't think I am. I'm rather acknowledging that the Bible, as supreme authority, belongs in a broader pattern of authority. In this pattern, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is at the very head, right? The risen Christ says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So, Scripture is part of a broader pattern, and Christ is the magisterial authority, even over Scripture. But all authority has been given to Christ, but He has not held on to it. He delegated His authority. We see this in the Gospels. He gives His apostles authority to do different things. He delegates His authority. He appoints and He anoints. And the apostles therefore have the Holy Spirit, and they're empowered to do what Jesus wants them to do. They're empowered, most of all, to be witnesses, Acts 1.8. The Spirit has empowered them to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So there's a pattern of what? Let's call it testimony, a pattern of authoritative testimony. Even the Father and the Spirit give testimony to who Jesus is. 
And then the prophets and the apostles give testimony to Christ as well. There's a pattern of testimony. God the Father makes Himself known through Christ. Christ makes Himself known to the apostles. The apostles make Christ known to the church. And then the church is part of the pattern, you see, because we're to make Christ known to the world. We're part of a pattern of authority that includes sola scriptura. So again, Scripture alone excludes rival authorities, but not ministers. No, it calls for ministers. So I'm saying that the church and church traditions have a place in the pattern of authority. Scripture alone does not mean Scripture apart from the community of faith or Scripture independent even of church tradition. Sola Scriptura excludes rivals, such as the teaching office of the Roman church. Scripture, or scripture alone excludes man-made traditions, people who try to add requirements to the Bible. But it does not eliminate other sources or ministers. And this brings us to the priesthood of all believers which is at the heart of Luther's reform of the church. Luther says, God's word cannot be without God's people. And conversely, God's people cannot be without God's word. 1 Peter 2.9 speaks of a royal priesthood of all believers. And this is not a pathology of Protestants the priesthood of all believers does not mean that every individual is a little pope. It does not mean that. No, the priesthood of all believers is part of this broader pattern of authority. Royal, the royal priesthood, royal signifies authority. Priesthood signifies interpretive community. We're together as a community. And all believers means that individuals aren't autonomous agents, but we're members of a community, citizens of the gospel. You might even say the Reformers had an idea of sola ecclesia, but not as a rival authority, not as a rival authority. The church alone, sola ecclesia, the church alone is the place where Christ rules over His kingdom. The church alone is the place where Christ gives gifts for the building of His living temple. This is important, you see. We have to understand the place of Sola Scriptura in a broader pattern, because if we're going to retrieve the promise of the Reformation, but not the pathology, we have to retrieve not simply the idea, but the practice of the royal priesthood the priesthood of all believers. This is a piece, a very vital piece in this pattern of authority. So, let me pause and take stock now. I've said that Scripture is the sole magisterial authority, the scepter of Christ, as Luther calls it. So, it's not a, an authority opposed to Christ. It's the way Christ wields His authority. Scripture is the scepter of Christ, the royal scepter. So, Scripture is the sole magisterial authority because of that, but it doesn't play that role independently of the royal priesthood 
or of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's work includes guiding church tradition, guiding the church into all truth. So let's call that ministerial authority, not magisterial authority. A ministerial authority is a secondary authority, but it still has a place in this pattern of authority and interpretation. I know some of you are working with Scott Swain, and so let me appeal to his authority now, because he's in the pattern too. Scott Swain says, the Spirit who enables and sustains our reading of Scripture also provides a community to aid us in our reading. Did you catch that? The Spirit who has inspired this book has also formed a community to help us learn to read it. That's why I'm saying Scripture isn't alone, absolutely. It's alone in its claim to be the supreme authority, but it's not alone in this process of interpretation. Neither Luther or Calvin believed that Scripture was absolutely alone. Remember, their, their uh, slogan was sola scripture, not solo scripture. Solo scripture would be scripture singing alone. But the problem with thinking that individuals interpret the Bible alone, solo, for themselves, is that they're doing it in isolation from church and tradition. They don't have checks and balances on their readings that way. And sadly, to read alone, like bowling alone, uh, you're foregoing the gift of community and the gifts the Spirit provides in community. In other words, to go solo in your reading of Scripture is to neglect the importance of reading in the communion of saints. The Reformers did not believe that. They said sola, but they didn't want you to go solo. So we're now in a better position, I think, to see how the church Catholic, the universal church, uh, this consensus tradition we've got through the centuries, the church Catholic is the context, thanks to the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the church Catholic is the context in which the text makes sense, in which the text exercises its authority and leads us in the way of Jesus Christ. Would it surprise you to learn that the Reformers were for Catholicity? They believed in the universality of the church. Luther and Calvin alike, they often appealed to the church fathers, appealed to them, that is, appealed to them as authorities, but always as ministerial authorities, secondary, you know, corroboration, not for the main point, but just for, for emphasis. So when I speak of tradition, I mean the post-apostolic conversation about biblical discourse. What does it mean? And this post-apostolic conversation, the conversation in the church as to what the Bible means, this can also be a means the Spirit uses to guide the whole church into all truth. So let me define tradition now. Tradition, you see, is also a pattern in the 
Protestant understanding of authority. It has a place in the pattern. And tradition is there to nurture believers as well. So think of tradition as the church's stance of abiding in and with apostolic teaching through time. I like uh, Herman Bavink's construal of tradition as the method by which the Holy Spirit causes the truth to pass into the consciousness and life of the church. If that's what tradition is, I hope you can see why it fits in the Protestant pattern of authority. So, sola scriptura is the practice of attending to the Spirit speaking in the Scriptures, yes, and to others who are trying to be attentive to Scripture. That is, this conversation that tradition can be. I think sola scriptura is compatible with what we could call reforming Catholicity, a Catholicity governed first and foremost by the Scriptures. What God has joined together, canonicity and Catholicity, let no one, either evangelical or Roman Catholic, put asunder. So the products of tradition, this conversation about what Scripture means, include things like the rule of faith, creeds, confessions of faith. These could be means the Spirit uses to guide the church into truth. I'm not advocating for tradition that adds things to Scripture. That's not biblical. We're told in Deuteronomy and in Revelation not to add a single word. That is, we're not to add new content. We don't need to. Jesus is the definitive revelation. So the tradition I'm talking about doesn't add new content in that sense. Tradition doesn't have any independent power to generate new light. I think light is the operative term. God is light. Christ is the light of the world, light from light. And Scripture is the appointed instrument through which the light of Christ shines on us. God is light, yes, but interestingly... God appointed lights in the expanse of heaven to give lights upon the earth. Genesis 1.16 tells us God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And tradition, I want to suggest to you, tradition is the lesser light. Tradition is the moon to Scripture's sun. You see, the light of the moon really does help us walk at nighttime, doesn't it? But the light of the moon comes from the sun. The light of the moon is totally secondary, totally derivative. And that is how I see the authority of tradition. It can give off real light, but it's always reflected from the sun, Scripture. Tradition, then, is a secondary ministerial authority insofar as it reflects the light of Scripture. And that's what the Reformers wanted it to do and to be. You know, we need that extra light. We need light to travel when we're in the dark in the middle of the night. We need that extra light just the way the Ethiopian eunuch needed help. 
Remember, Philip gets into the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? And so, Philip gets into the chariot and helps him understand the Scripture. So, if you didn't like the picture of the moon, (laughs) tradition as the moon, uh, try Philip. Think of Philip as tradition in the flesh. Again, Philip would agree Scripture alone is the supreme authority, but he had a role to play in this pattern of interpretive authority. Scripture alone is the supreme authority, but God in His grace decided it was not good for Scripture to be alone. He thus authorized tradition. And when Scripture saw it, Scripture said, this at last is the norm of my norm and the light of my light. She shall be called post-apostolic testimony because she was taken out of apostolic testimony. So, I hope you see that sola scriptura is not a blank check that individuals can cash to fund their own idiosyncratic interpretations. Sola scriptura, rather, is a call to pay attention to the broader Protestant pattern of authority, to listen for the Spirit speaking in the history of the church's interpretation, tradition. So, we need to practice sola scriptura. And part of the process of producing mature disciples is coming to accept the fact that your own interpretations um, are perhaps part of this treasury that comes out of belonging to a royal priesthood. I don't want to commend uh, pervasive interpretive pluralism, but I do want to commend the joy of unitive interpretive plurality. That is, there are some differences that are legitimate. Some differences can enrich our conversations about Scripture. Others, of course, are painful and divisive. So, what about all these denominations we have in the Protestant world? I think of denominations as houses There are places where disciples can be sheltered and nurtured, fed, and grow. There's nothing wrong with living in a house. It beats homelessness. As long as you practice hospitality to strangers and neighborliness to the people who live next door. Now, denominationalism is an ideology. It's an ism. And it's the ideology that one's own tribe, one's own house alone deserves to be on Gospel Avenue. It denies genuine citizenship of the gospel to others. Sola mio denominatio, my denomination alone. I think of denominationalism as a concern more for the house and its structural integrity and its curb value and appeal more than for the people who actually inhabit it, and certainly more than for the neighborhood. But I think the spirit of Reformation Protestantism trains disciples, should be training disciples, to care not only for their own inhabitants in their own house, but to be good neighbors, 
to others. And again, I think I've seen that displayed in this church already. It's important that we see each house as charged with representing the whole neighborhood. That's the other thing to remember. The local church's first responsibility, in addition to making disciples, is to be a priesthood that represents Christ. And every local church is to represent the universal church in its place. I'm suggesting then that we think of ourselves as mere Protestants before we think of ourselves as belonging to a particular denomination. And mere Protestants seek to be at peace with as many denominations as possible. Not everybody. We can't sacrifice truth, of course. So how can we be at peace with those with whom we have doctrinal disagreements. One idea is to think about dogmatic rank. Dogmatic rank is simply the idea that not every doctrinal disagreement is on the same level. Not every doctrine is essential to the integrity of the gospel, but some are. And just recognizing that, that not every doctrine is of the same importance, can go a long way in solving some of the interpretive disagreements between various churches. Some doctrines are, as I say, closer to the core of the gospel. They're typically the ones that concern who Jesus is, who God is, the triune God. And if we didn't have these doctrines we lose the story. The story of Jesus doesn't make sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. The story of Jesus would not be good news if, God, if Jesus were not God in the flesh. So we have to hold on to doctrines that are necessary for the integrity of our gospel story. No incarnation, no good news. And if you think of church history, and if you look at the historic church councils, the doctrines they debated were often first-order dogmas like that, the Trinity, the Incarnation. And again, what they produced in their creeds was not a second authoritative source. It was a clarification of the first, of Scripture. If the creeds have authority, it's only because, like the moon, they're reflecting the light of Scripture, making what is, was implicit in Scripture more explicit. And these doctrines I'm talking about now, the ones on which the gospel story depends, these are what we call level one doctrines, doctrines of first dogmatic order, of first rank. Without these, it's good night Christianity. But not every doctrine is like that. And I think if Protestants paid more attention to dogmatic rank, they could perhaps resolve certain interpretive disagreements or at least turn the heat down or the volume down in the discussion. There's a book written by a Baptist theologian. Oh, not a Baptist. Maybe he is. Anyway, a new book by Gavin Ortland called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Not every doctrinal difference is a hill to die on, but some are, and we need judgment to know which is which. So, just knowing that not every doctrine is first order is one way to be at peace with other Protestants, 
There's another practice we need to learn, however, and that's something that reformers practiced themselves. We can call it table talk, table talk. In Calvin's 16th century Geneva, every Friday he would meet with other pastors and interested lay people to study a passage of Scripture. It was a, a meeting called the Congregation. We get our word congregation from that. So they would meet to study the Bible. One particular person would present. It wasn't really a sermon. It was more of a, a seminar, or that's why they called it a, a conference. And these were times where people would give and receive correction. And this required humility. They had to be teachable. And it required all the other dialogical virtues. That is, you have to be a certain kind of person to be in a conversation with people who disagree with you. And Calvin encouraged ministers in other towns besides Geneva to adopt the same practice. And he said, this is also the best bond to retain consensus in doctrine. Talk it out. Take as long as you need. Talk it out. Listen to one another. Be willing to be corrected. And I think this process of conversing together and submitting corporately to the authority of Scripture, which is above all of us, this to me is mere Protestant Christianity at its best. And this is sort of what happens in the church councils. The church councils come together to resolve disagreements, to make theological judgments about important issues. And this is another source of authority, by the way, in, in the time leading up to the Reformation. Some Roman Catholics thought the Pope had too much power, and there were many in the Roman Catholic Church who thought the church councils ought to be the place where the important decisions were made. And the movement to say that the councils should be the place where these important decisions were made it's called conciliarism, conciliarism, councils as more important than the papacy. And the reformers, by and large, were conciliarists. In fact, one historian argues that conciliarism, this tendency to make councils the ultimate human authority under Scripture, that this tendency is the constitutional principle of what he calls unitive Protestantism, the kind of Protestantism that was trying to get together and make common confession. They did it through councils. And again, what happens at council is table talk. You're talking with others over the table. And again, what's going on is not adding new meaning to the text, but you're letting people share their respective insights. It takes time to listen to others, but time is a gift God has given us. We need to be stewards of it. It's a time, is an opportunity to grow in our understanding through dialogue with others. But dialogues only work if you're willing to listen and make an effort to understand and not to assume that you're right from the get-go. You need to be a certain kind of person to be in a good dialogue. You need to have the dialogical virtues. Come, let us reason together. 
Not everybody can do that. And my prayer for the church during COVID and during this time when other public bodies seem unable to get together and reason, <laughs> my prayer for the local church is that the church would be such a place, a place where people could have table fellowship and table talk and demonstrate how to listen to others with whom we disagree and yet not necessarily have to break fellowship because of it. Because we have to assume that the people we're talking with are just as motivated to understand Scripture as we are. If you believe that, if you believe your partner is just as motivated to understand Scripture as you, I think you'll listen to that person differently, and you'll hope that that person listens to you. In any case, this table talk is an excellent curriculum and practice for disciples, and we all need to work together to try to show the truth of our doctrine that the church is one. Local churches can do this by reading in communion with the saints. And you're doing that. I know you're doing it. You cited the Heidelberg Catechism question today. When you do that, you're affirming your common faith with the church Catholic, the universal church. I think, as I've said, every local church is a particular manifestation in this place and this time of the universal church. And so I do imagine in my dreams denominational differences becoming a charitable dialogue that witnesses to the world. I think that's the true spirit of Protestantism. It's a reforming, not a Roman, Catholicity, a Catholicity that is always being reformed through discussion under the authority of God's Word. That's the spirit of Protestantism that I think the Reformers were trying to, to leave us, a Catholicity governed by canonicity, the canonical Scriptures. And with that, the defense rests. So, we are in a trial, remember, <laughs> so we have to wrap up. I've been asking if Sola Scriptura was a mistake, an inadvertent tragedy in church history. And we've looked at some evidence for and against that charge. We've heard testimony that calls into question some of the familiar caricatures of the Reformation. But in my closing argument, I'd like to suggest to you, gentlemen and ladies of the jury, that although as a matter of historical record, Sola Scriptura did lead to a division in the church, I think in principle, it could have gone otherwise. It could have led to what I'm calling a comic possibility, which is a comic possibility for the church today. It all starts with Luther's comic actuality, that is, his teaching of the wondrous exchange, Christ's righteousness for our sin. This was his signature theme of how faith lays hold of Christ, so that what was Christ's, his being the Son of God, becomes ours. That's the wondrous exchange. It all begins with that actuality. Christ takes our sinful status and gives us his status of son. The benefit of faith, says Luther, is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. 
It's a comedy, you see, because it's a story of protagonists overcoming obstacles in order to reach a happy ending, usually a marriage. And that's exactly what we have in Scripture, the message that we are united in Christ thanks to the Holy Spirit. Union with Christ, then, has to be the basis in reality that leads to my second point, which is how we recognize this reality. Now, to be sure, the reality of the body of Christ is that it is divided at present. And there's nothing particularly comic about the gaping wound in the body of Christ. Apostle Paul didn't think it was funny. He wrote to the church at Corinth saying, I appeal to you, brothers, that there be no divisions among you. So how can the Reformation be the stuff of comedy if it has led to division? Well, my argument has been that sola scriptura is not inherently divisive. I mean, it does divide truth from falsehood, but there's nothing inherent about sola scriptura to divide people who are in Christ from one another. Yes, we have differences, but I've already said not every difference has to result in a denominational division. And even when there are different denominations, Protestant believers can still fellowship at the same table, the Lord's table. This is how we remember Him. And when we share the Lord's Supper with one another, we're recognizing by our practice that we have the most important thing in common, Christ. Even if on levels, doctrines of second and third order, we may have disagreements. So acknowledging that someone in a different denomination may also be in union with Christ, that's an important condition for the possibility of cross-denominational fellowship and dialogue. And that's what I'm calling the comic possibility of the Reformation, the possibility of a kind of unity that transcends denominational differences, the comic possibility of Protestant Christianity is precisely the prospect of a kind of universality that's not centered on a structure, an imperial structure like Rome, but on an imperial gospel, this royal word of the gospel, the, the book of Romans. Well, let me invoke a final witness. I know this is highly improper since I'm in my concluding statement. But a last witness, John Wesley. Wesley asks in a sermon called A Catholic Spirit, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion? And I think in context, Wesley isn't advocating an indifference to opinions. He cares about doctrines himself, but he's calling for a generosity of spirit. I think he's calling for what I've termed the dialogical virtues. We have to learn how to love one another without becoming indifferent to doctrinal truth. That's the challenge. But the comic possibility of the Reformation is that it is possible to put Catholicity on a new ground, not geographic, Rome, but bibliographic, Romans, 
we can put Catholicity on the ground of the gospel that we hear in the book of Romans. That's what I mean by canonicity. And this was the purpose of the Reformation, to make Catholicity not Roman, but attending to Romans, the message of the gospel. That was what the Reformation was about. So, sola scriptura, in fact, is actually a proposal for a kind of unity and a kind of Catholicity, but again, it's structured not on Rome, but on Romans. Okay, three points by way of conclusion, and then over to you for the verdict and maybe some Q&A. First point, Scripture is singularly supreme in authority, but as I've argued, it's not alone in the pattern of authority. Sola Scriptura means that Scripture alone is of first importance. It's the supreme authority, and it's of first importance of making wise unto salvation, making disciples, and so on. But Scripture alone is the supreme authority, but is, is not alone, as we've said. So, second, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who wholeheartedly affirm both Scripture alone and the importance of Catholicity. The problem with the Roman Catholic Church is not that it's Catholic. It's rather that its Catholicity is circumscribed by Rome, which is almost a contradiction in terms. How can something be universal and at Rome. But as I've said, the Reformers cared about Catholicity. In fact, you might even say Catholicity is partly what the Reformation was about. Is it going to be defined by Rome or by Romans? Third, Sola Scriptura is both a confession of faith that God's Word is infallible, and it's a confession of sin that our interpretations are, in contrast, not infallible. We're fallible. When you say sola scriptura, you're basically saying that the church and her tradition are accountable to another word, the Word of God. But I think the kind of Protestantism that needs to live on is not the tragic caricature that we often hear about, even today, of people reading the Bible on their own or being proud of their own denominations. No, the kind of Protestantism that needs to live on is the Reformation original Protestantism, the one that encouraged the uh, church to hold fast to the gospel and to one another in Christ. So, I like to say, and I hope this isn't too controversial, that the only good Protestant is a Catholic Protestant, someone who learns from and bears fruit for the whole church. So, the Protestant Reformation is animated by a Catholic spirit, and the Reformation calls all Christians to further Reformation. And I think a successful Reformation, by which I mean a marriage of denominations that are now divided, a successful Reformation would indeed be a divine comedy, because only the Spirit can enable us to forgive each other our sins, and to achieve this communion of the saints in Christ. But I believe in the church and in happy endings, and in this case, 
it would be the idea of a reforming Catholic church, a creature of sola scriptura. So I'd urge you all to take up this unfinished comic possibility, uniting Protestants and who knows, maybe others, by reforming Catholicity so that our Christian fellowship is as deep and wide as is the gospel itself. Thank you. I don't think the church should take power even if it was offered to it. I think the church's main ministry is prophetic and priestly, but not kingly. Christ is king. We have been appointed prophets and, and priests who mediate His truth, but it's, it hasn't really gone well when the church has been given too much power. I do think we should use uh, the power of speech to try to speak truth to power, but again, then the church has had power. It hasn't always gone well. Uh, and so I don't think we should expect that. I think the New Testament, Romans 13, and other passages prepare us rather to be witnesses, martyrs, because the word martyr means witness, but it also means people who are willing to suffer for their witness. And I think that's the kind of disciple I think we need to be preparing these days, people who are willing to have the courage to speak up and perhaps to suffer the consequences of that. Again, we can try to make our case in the public square, but I don't know that we should be trying to vie for power itself. Uh, Jesus said His kingdom isn't of this world.
So the Reformers did not want to start a new church. They wanted the scenario that you're after. They wanted to reform the one church, in part for the sake of witness. There were also other considerations like politics and so on. I don't know what exactly would have happened if it had worked. I, I think it could have worked. I think they could have been more amenable. There were critics before the Reformers came along making some progress. Um, but we're, we need to look at the future now. So I don't know about that alternative past. Um, as far as the future, I do think that you know, we're in the stage of the book of Acts, right? And what's encouraging about the book of Acts is that we see the Word of God, when ministered and preached faithfully, multiplies. That word multiplies is quite striking in the book of Acts. And of course, it's the Spirit doing the multiplying. But I think what we need to do is we need to bear faithful witness in whatever forums we have and, and trust. I mean, we can't, we can't depend on worldly rhetorical techniques. We can't depend on the social media to do it. I think it's just the Word of God faithfully proclaimed and lived out in local churches. Frankly, my hope for the world is the local church. I'm not looking for any other institution to solve our problems. It's going to be done one community at a time, which I think should be encouraging to us because we can make a, a real difference where we are. And if other congregations make a real difference where they are, we will be, uh, you know, a catalyst for real change. Is that, is that getting at what you were interested in? Thank you. Thank you.